Welcome to the Table Dallas podcast. At the Table Dallas, we create a sacred space to worship, connecting our stories with the story of God as revealed in scriptures. We invite you now to listen to this week's discussion. Welcome everyone here to the table, whether you are with us in historic Mill Street House here in downtown Louisville or wherever you're gathering us with us around the world. We are in the middle of our series, our Lenten series, asking the question, why is it or why do we need a savior? So if you have your Bible with you in either electronic form or in print form, let me give you a little bit of a heads up here. We're going to be in 1 Kings chapter 11. 1 Kings chapter 11. So if you want to turn there, I'll give you a little bit of a head start. 1 Kings chapter 11 is where we'll be tonight. And uh, we've been looking at this question about how sin, first we looked at how sin entered the world, way back in the story of Genesis chapter 3. And then we looked at how quickly then sin spread throughout humanity. And when God had to respond with the flood, then we also looked uh, a couple weeks ago at what happens when sin takes on brick and mortar. And that was the story of the Tower of Babel. And then last week we jumped ahead a little bit and we looked at um, Jesus and the teachings of Jesus about sin and the seriousness of sin. We entitled that one, The Smell of Sin. And we are now back in our First Testament stories in First Kings chapter 11. But before we get there... And before we dive into the study itself, I want to ask a question, and I want you to uh, help me try to understand something. The Chinese philosopher Lao Tzu said this, and it's probably a quote that you're familiar with. I'll be interested to hear where you've seen it before, where you've heard it before, and then also what you understand it to mean. So Lao Tzu said, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. The journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. A, what do you think he means by that? And then B, where have you seen it? How have you understood it? Anybody heard that phrase? Anybody heard that before? Anybody seen it like on a poster? Like a poster, frame poster? Like in an office or somewhere? Kung Fu. It, oh, okay, Kung Fu the movie or something? <laughs> All right, so A, what does he mean? And then, like, what? how is it generally used? Anybody? Motivational. So we use it motivational. What do you mean by that? Explain how it's supposed to motivate you. In what sense? And in what way? You're never going to get anywhere standing still. Okay. So you got to move on. All right. How many of you agree with that? So something along the lines of it's but, not going to happen on its own. But it says it a little bit more politely. It's what I understand. Yes, the journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step. So it's obvious that he's not just talking about, like, if we're going to go from here to, well, a thousand miles isn't Austin, but I'm just going to pick Austin because it's easy. If we're going to go from here to Austin, right, you can't make it all the way to Austin if you don't first take... A car. A step. Oh, I like that. A car. Good one. A step in that direction, right? But usually it's motivational. Any other way that it, it, it might be used besides just like get a move on it? Yeah, I look at it like the task looks so daunting and the way that you start the task is with the first step. Okay. So when you're looking at something that could be considered daunting, right? You've got to, you know, large that you got to start something like that. All right. Anybody else? Any ideas of how you've seen it or maybe even you've used it? You probably most often it's used to sort of overcome that like inertia of like beginning a task. 
But I think there's a little bit more to it in paying attention to each step. Okay. So, you know, yes, it's a journey of a thousand miles, but it's composed of. So maybe a focus on being present in each individual step along that thousand miles. Like, don't just be worried about getting to the end, but you have all of the processes and all the steps in between. Okay. I can see that. Any other ideas? Any other ideas? Because I have a question then. Could this same phrase also be used to warn people of the dangers of a wrong step? Yeah. You're all shaking your head. What do you mean? How would we use it in that way? Because sometimes you start with that first step and you get so far down the path that it's hard to see where you came from or to turn back. Okay. Other and, ideas. Yeah, and also that it's it's kind of like when you're being tempted by sin, you shouldn't even think about it or any anything to like you're not actually committing the sin yet, but those baby steps might end up leading you. It might there. lead you in that direction. Yeah, so just okay. yeah. Any other ideas along that? Any other? What? You're smiling? Like, what? No? No? Oh, side conversation. We're talking about the cookies. The cookies. <laughs> the cookies drawing your attention. Just eat it. Then it'll be gone, right? Exactly. Well, I would like to suggest to you that uh, tonight's lesson reveals something very similar to that in the life of King Solomon, who is our focus tonight. Um, his life, especially near the end of his life, was like a series of wrong decisions that he had made. It's like the accumulation, I guess I would say, the accumulation of a series of wrong decisions that resulted in some serious consequences. Because as we've been talking about since the beginning of the series, this series, none of us sins in a vacuum. What do we mean by that? None of us sins in a vacuum. They're not alone. Everything you do has an effect on other things. Exactly. So if our sin is the culpable breaking of shalom, when we break our relationship with God, we also tend to break relationships with each other. And the one that we often miss, we also damage our relationship with creation around us at times and how we interact with that, right? And so certainly in this instance, we're going to see how the sin had an effect might be a little tougher for us to pick up on how it affected Solomon, but we're definitely going to be able to see how it affected his family and then the greater nation as we go along. So 1 Kings chapter 11, and we're going to kind of be looking at the first 13 verses. And let me set it up this way for you. So we know that Solomon is the third king in the line of kings for Israel. The first one being King Saul, followed by Solomon's father, who was David, and now Solomon more or less obeyed the Torah, the law, as his father did, at least in the beginning part of his life. And so in the book of 1 Kings, it opens with the death of King David, and it ends with the death of King Ahab. And the intervening century and a half is the story of national decline, its disruption, disintegration, and ultimately, from Israel's perspective, disaster. So the fact that it opens and closes with death should kind of give us a way to kind of focus in on, okay, there's a message happening here, right, that we need to pay attention to. Because we know all the way back in the beginning when the law was given, Moses said, if you keep the law, what would be the result? If they were obedient to the law, they would receive or they would have? Blessing. 
life and blessings, right? And conversely, he said, if you choose to disobey the law, what was going to be the consequences of it? Like death is really what would happen. The breaking of that shalom and ultimately we saw death. So obeying the law leads to life. Disobedience leads to all kinds of personal issues. And so Solomon inherits the throne at the height of Israel's power. It's a peaceful kingdom now. David has expanded the territories to all that God had promised them. There is peace throughout the land, right? And he turns over the throne to Solomon with one singular big task in front of him. Anybody remember? David wanted to do this, but God would not allow him to do this. What is that task? Build the temple. He wanted him, he, David wanted to build the temple. And I always love the way that David reasoned he spent 13 years building his palace. 180,000 people working for 13 years to build his palace. He gets finished, and he sits down on his front porch, which basically faces the temple, uh, where well, the temple is now, the temple mount is. And there was, not the temple, but what? The tent called the tabernacle. the tabernacle. He's like, I'm up here living the luxurious life. And God is in a pop tent. Mm -hmm. I want to build something better for him. And God said, no, you're a man of war. I'm going to give that to your son Solomon. And that was his task. The problem was that um, Solomon, although he was given the gift wisely asked for and received the gift of wisdom, it doesn't always play out the best in his life, if you know the story. All right, so let's kind of pick up there. That's the background. Chapter 11 of 1 Kings picks up that narrative He's near the end of his life. He's already completed his palace. He's completed the temple. And now we're getting a glimpse into the last part of his life. So somebody go ahead and read for me. If you have the CEB, it helps for those of us who are listening through the podcast to all have it in the same um, translation. Go ahead and read the first three verses. And let's see if you can't pick up on the sense of where things are for Solomon. 11, 1 to 3. In addition to Pharaoh's daughter, King Solomon loved many foreign women, including Moabites, Ammonites, Edomites, Sidonites, and Hittites. These came from the nations that the Lord had commanded the Israelites about. Don't intermarry with them. They will definitely turn your heart toward their gods. Solomon clung to these women in love. He had 700 royal wives and 300 secondary wives. They turned his heart. I love watching your faces because as she's reading, I'm seeing eyebrows going up. People are shaking their heads. They're going, really? I've heard this a dozen times. Wait, he had 700 wives and 300 secondary wives, just in case the 700 wasn't enough. Okay, so we have to pause there. We kind of have to look at the elephant in the middle of the room here and go, all right, 700 wives. All right, you ready? You ready for my big insight after a week of really focusing in on studying on this? You ready? 700 wives equals 700 mother-in-laws. Yeah. <laughs> Some of them could have been sisters. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, think about that for a minute. Right? 700 wives, 700 mother-in-laws. I know that's making light of the situation, but it does kind of focus us in and opens up the door for discussion about, all right, what exactly is happening here? Because remember, 
Solomon in 1 Kings 3 asks, God appears to him. And we're going to pick that up in the text in a couple of minutes. God appears to him and says, I want to grant you one request, anything you want. Because of your father, David, I'm going to grant you anything you want. And we all know that Solomon didn't ask for riches. What did he ask for? He said, I want to be the white wisdom. He became the wisest man in the world. All right. And still had a thousand wives. What's happening here? I mean, does that sound like the decision of the wisest man who the Bible describes ever to have lived? Well, if he was strengthening his kingdom around the world, what better way to do it than to marry into royal families across the... I mean, that would be my guess. So there's a, certainly a sense in which... This isn't all about libido. Okay, a thousand women isn't about libido anymore. This is about something else. And so, I'm sorry, are we adults? I'm sorry, did I just say that without warning you? I mean, it's not just about libido. Obviously, there's something in there because it says that he loved women, those women. Certainly, obviously, probably not all of them, but something along those. So there is that sense of maybe building some packs, and that would be common in that day, right, if you wanted to do that. All right, what else might be happening, though? I mean, does this sound wise? No. Was there any prohibition against multiple wives? No. Be careful, because a lot of times we think, well, God's... No, there was no prohibition against multiple wives, per se, but this seems like a little bit, like, over the top. So God says, don't do this, and he says it for a reason. Because mm. it'll turn your heart. Why? They will turn their your heart away. And by the way, Moses warned about this. Mm-hmm. He didn't just warn the kings. He warned everyone in Israel at the mount when they received the law. He said, do not marry these people who are outside of my covenant. Remember, we talked about this last week. After the, after the flooding, he sends, I mean, sorry, after the Tower of Babel, he sends everybody out. He says, this covenant nation, Israel, your mind, these other gods are going to handle all these little places like we talked about here. Don't intermingle with them. Because they're going to turn your hearts away. I am your covenant God. You stay with me because they'll turn your hearts away. Do you think Solomon can be blamed for idolatry being in Israel? Can we blame him for idolatry being in Israel? Well, that's what it says is going to happen. And that's what he does. So. In other words, let me, let me rephrase it. Is he the one responsible for introducing idolatry? Into Israel's history? Their history? In the history of yeah. Israel. Not long ago. No, There's already there. cases of idolatry, you know, prior to this. Which one? Uh, golden calf. Yeah, like the golden calf kind of jumps up. Like, that's 40 days. Get that now. That's a month and 10 days, right? At least, unless it's leap year or something like this year, right? It's still a month and 10 days. They go away. They get the law, right? He comes down, and after a month and 10 days, they can't even wait that long. They've already created an idol. They're already worshiping another idol. And by the way, if you go through the book of Judges, that's what they're being judged for every single time. Another series of false worship. They bring in another judge to release them. They all repent, and that you know that cycle goes on and on. So he's not responsible for that. But what can we hold him responsible for? I mean, he's the king. And what has he done here that is beyond just his own disobedience to God's command? He's setting a bad example. How so? By breaking the suggestion, law, recommendation not to intermarry. Yeah. 
And so by doing that, he's setting the example that says one of two things. It's either okay for everybody or the king is I'm above God in God's command. It doesn't apply to me. And sometimes I wonder if that might have been some of what was happening in Solomon's life. I mean, this guy is pretty wise. Everybody, the Bible and other places tells us that people were coming from all over the world to seek his wisdom. You know how they like to say that your greatest strength can also be your greatest weakness? He's got the answer for everything. And yet, if you, to me, when you look at this, this is pretty dumb. Am I wrong? Am I being hard? Thousand women. He, he seemed a bit of a, a hoarder. <laughs> a bit of a hoarder. <laughs> I mean, women, women, but he also wasn't supposed to do horses. No chariots, no horses. You're yeah, right. And and it's in the same chapter of Deuteronomy, but but he seems a bit of a hoarder. You know, if there was a motto for his life, it would probably be, be go big or go home. <laughs> no, I'm serious. Listen to this. All right. So he reigned for thirty nine years. All right. He received 25 tons of gold each year for the 39 years of his reign. History tells us that um, of all the gold that's been taken out of the ground since the beginning of time till now, Solomon had over half of it himself. Let that, let that sink in. 25 tons every year for 39 years. We already talked about the 700 wives, 300 concubines. By the way, that gold today would be worth 2.3 trillion with a T. Trillion dollars. 180, he had to have more than his dad. 180,000 laborers to build his palace and then the temple. And when the temple was finished, he doesn't just have a little party. He sacrifices 22,000 oxen and 120,000 sheep. They said the blood ran up to the waist of the priest in a nonstop 24-hour, over and over again, never stopping sacrificing. Because when he went big, he went really big. Not to mention 40,000 stalls for horses and chariots, which... You, know, you perfectly mentioned that he wasn't supposed to amass chariots and horses either. How are the wives and chariots and horses and his amassing of those things, how are they interconnected? If you think about it for a minute, you'll pick it up. How are they interconnected? Power. Materialism. Power. Well, Power. horses and chariots are for war. And... Marrying a bunch of other uh, people from other nations is about, uh, I don't know. Protecting, protecting yourself from your nation. Solidifying your nation. Sorry, say it again. Politics. Politics. Yeah, the politics of keeping keeping the nations around you on your side, mm -hmm. right? And and if you're intermarried with them, right? And not only are you intermarried with them, but if you have, I mean, 40,000 stalls, 12,000 chariots, I mean, you are, what is that, uh, peace through strength? Carry a big stick. Yeah. But what's the problem with that? I mean, that doesn't sound like that would be the worst thing in the world, right? To protect your country and... Have all of this? Is there a problem with that? He's not relying on God. He's not relying on God. Yeah, he's not relying on God at all. Right? God said, "Don't worry about it. 
I got this. This is my territory. I'm the most powerful God there is here. All the Elohim answer to me. You don't have to worry about anything, so don't amass horses. Don't amass chariots, because they are going to... They're basically going to demonstrate that you really don't trust me. And, oh, by the way, those wives that you have, they're going to turn your heart. They're going to turn your heart. So let's take a look at what then happens, all right? So... Um, by the way, one last question about that. Um, do you think this is really only about pleasing his wives? Is there something else happening here? Which part is about pleasing his wives? Having, you know, um, uh, taking wives from other nations and allowing them to worship their own gods. Mm. I think it holds the, the peace, so to speak. You can't solidify your strength if you're forcing everybody you know without war but if you say okay you keep your way of living but we'll combine together for our own protection well that's the way you do it yeah yeah there was to me there's definitely a sense of which he's he's um how do I want to say there's a certain arrogance to me that comes across here of like the rules don't apply to me and um I got this. I don't need God. It's like kingdom building with the little K instead of kingdom building with the capital K. That's a great way to say it. Yeah. Kingdom building with, yes, exactly. So let's see what happens now in verses 4 through 8. Let's see what happens as the result of that. Because the warning was, don't do this because they will turn your heart. 4 to As Solomon grew old, his word, his wives turned his heart after other gods. What? <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't committed to the Lord, his God, with all his heart, as was his father David. Solomon followed Astarte, the goddess of the Sidonians, and Milcom, the detestable god of the Ammonites. Solomon did what was evil in the Lord's eyes and wasn't completely devoted to the Lord like his father David. On the hill east of Jerusalem, Solomon built a shrine to Chemosh, the detestable god of Moab, and to Molech, the detestable god of the Ammonites. He did the same for all his foreign wives who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. So is there um, a pro do we see a progression here? And if so, what is it? What do we see here? What's being laid out for us here? What's happened now? What's happened to Solomon's heart? Let's start there. Turned away. Okay. So it's definitely turned away. And then that heart being turned away led to what? Pursuing. Pursuing the, these other gods. So, so this is the clue that it's not just about making his wives happy. Mm -hmm. All right? Because it says, you know, that he built these on the city on a hill east of Jerusalem. Oh, and by the way, he built these for all of his wives as well. Right? So they did turn his heart away and toward um, these gods, these false gods all around him. Let's talk a little bit about these gods because they're just names, right? They don't mean anything to us. But let me share a little bit what goes with these gods. So Moloch was the god of the Ammonites. Um, the Ammonites are the descendants of Lot. Um, his name means destroyer. And the worship of Moloch included the sacrificing of infants to appease Moloch. 
This is one of those Elohim that we talked about, right? That people are like, oh my gosh, I'm terrified of him. He will be, he or she or it, I guess, Elohim is neutral in scripture. It doesn't give a gender. But I'm terrified, so we're offering up infants to mollify Moloch. Kamash, the god of Moabites, another nation that descended from Lot. This is the Mesopotamian god of famine and plague and death. You see, there's a, there's a thing happening here. And then Ashtaroth is the goddess of Tyre and Sidon. That's the god of sex and fertility. Anybody want to take a stab as, how, as to how they were worshipped? <laughs> Anybody want to take a stab or do I have to say it? In the temple, in the worship, not the biblical temple, but in the temple that was built for them. So why would Solomon, the wisest man who ever lived, why would he tolerate, then endorse, and participate in worship of gods from these nations? Because he took one step, and then it was easy to take Mm -hmm. the next step, and now we're sacrificing children. It's kind of like the old slippery slope thing that we sometimes talk about, that we sometimes laugh about, right? It's like, oh, well, this isn't that big of a deal, right? All he did was have a few too many wives. Okay. (laughs) And a few too many, way too many wives, and way too many chariots and horses. But, I mean, that's not that big of a deal, right? But then he couldn't stop. Because if he thought that that wasn't a big, he did the first step and it wasn't a punishment. Then he did the second step and there wasn't a punishment. And then he kept going. And until there is a punishment, he'll just keep going. Isn't that interesting? That we all, I mean, not maybe not all, but there's a, probably a good many of us in here are thinking, yeah, he pretty much got away with this. I mean, you think about it, he 25 tons of gold every year. People coming from all over the world to think he's wise. Anybody read the book of Ecclesiastes recently? That's what I was thinking. Anybody read it? Does anybody know what the general tone and tenor of the book of Ecclesiastes is? Strike after the wind. Yeah, just how everything in life, right, is just like chasing after the wind. You know, you could argue that Solomon was a tortured soul. At least by the time he gets to writing the book of Ecclesiastes, he's like, you know what? Started out super wise, but somewhere along the line, I'm tilting against windmills and I'm going after the wrong things. And when you read Ecclesiastes, you sit there and go, here's somebody who's like, there's really no purpose in life. Really? Because he got so far down that he forgot what it was that he was, he he swayed so far away that it was hard to come back because he forgot what he was supposed to be doing in the first place. And what message, by the way, does his actions then send to the citizens of Israel? Who were, by the way, certainly aware of his actions? There's no punishment for sin. Let's keep going. You would think that, don't you think that's a possible message? They were like, okay, so we all understand the law. We're not supposed to be worshiping these other gods. But here's Solomon on the city, on the hill to the east of Jerusalem. He's erected these shrines literally within eyeshot of the temple he's just built. The message being sent is, if he's not being punished, I guess it's... And oh, by the way, God told him, God put him in that position. And God warned him, too. And yet, they're looking, they're not seeing the consequences of it, and you wonder if some of them aren't going, hmm. He's prospering, why can't I? Maybe, maybe God wasn't serious when he said that. Maybe Moses heard wrong. <laughs> right? 
But remember, Moses was Nostradamus before Nostradamus. He warned them, don't intermarry with non-covenant nations. They'll turn your heart away. And by the way, Moses forbade kings from taking many wives. That's the word, many wives, for that same reason. They would turn their hearts. So let's see what the consequences are there in verses 9 through 13 as we kind of finish the, the story. Line 9 through 13. The Lord grew angry with Solomon because his heart had turned away from being with the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. The Lord had commanded Solomon about this very thing, that he shouldn't follow other gods. But Solomon didn't do what the Lord commanded. The Lord said to Solomon, Because you have done all this instead of keeping my covenant and my laws that I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. Even so, on account of your father David, I won't do it during your lifetime. I will tear the kingdom out of your son's hands. Moreover, I won't tear away the entire kingdom. I will give one tribe to your son on account of my servant David and on account of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. All right, so here's the question. Listen carefully and think about it before you answer. What in the text specifically caused God to grow angry with Solomon? Think about it for a second. What specifically, the text lays it out for us, what specifically caused God to grow angry with Solomon? Was it 700 wives and 300 extra wives? Was it 40,000 stables and 12,000 chariots? What was it? The first step. He didn't keep what God commanded. His heart was all being with the Lord. That his heart turned away from him. That's the cause. Everything else, that's the sickness. Everything else is what? Product of is the product of it or symptoms or whatever of the main root issue, right? That his heart turned away from God. Isn't it interesting that his father was described as the man after God's own heart? And he is the son whose heart turned away from God. Now here's the, here's as my grandmother used to say, the hundred million dollar question. Why was God so angry at that? Let me give you a clue. Remember now, anger is a secondary emotion. Do you know what I mean by that? I'm not going to say it the way you guys could probably say it, you brain scientists. But basically, anger right, is something that comes from secondarily. After you feel one of the five primary ones, then anger is a potential one. If you don't deal with those primary ones... Anger is it, and God is obviously personifying himself here. But what is it? He's angry, but what is causing that emotion? And it's clued in there in those verses we just read. Does, is it related to having already appeared to him? Exactly. What does it say? Well, it, it says the God of Israel who had appeared to him twice, but I don't know what the first Two chapters was. ago in chapter 9. So he's appeared in chapter 3, and he's, so two times the God of Israel, Yahweh, the God of Israel, think about it, step back and think about it. How many times in Scripture does God appear to an individual? Not that often, right? That's a pretty rare occurrence. Somebody who gets it twice, twice mm -hmm. right? 
How does that then inform God's anger as a secondary? What is the primary thing that, you, that God is trying to suggest that he's feeling? Disappointment. Disappointment? Hurt. Hurt. Hurt's primary, right? It can be disappointment too, but hurt, I think, hurt. Why hurt? As I told you. He, 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 he warned him, him in chapter 9. Like, but it's yeah. not, it is, yeah, go ahead and read it. He, okay. Uh, but if you or your sons turn away from following me and do not keep my commandments and my statutes, which I have set before you, but go and serve other gods and worship them, then I will cut off Israel from the land which I have given them, and I will cast out of my sight the house which I have consecrated for my name and presence. Then Israel will become a proverb and a byword of ridicule among all the peoples. You like that? A proverb. In other words, this is a cautionary tale. He's hurt, I would argue, he's hurt because he had a deep and abiding relationship with Solomon from the very beginning. And it's like, I gave you everything that any human being, the best of anything I've given to any human being. Mm -hmm. Wisdom, power, peace, all the money you could possibly, all the fame, everything you could possibly want. And this is how you... Repaining? Hurt? Do you buy that? Does that seem reasonable? Or do you think he's just angry because he's worshipping other gods? You'd have to do that with your kids on things. like. Mm -hmm. But David, wait, David was a sinner too, wasn't he? Mm -hmm. I mean, his father had a couple of things that you might go and say, mm -hmm. I mean... Solomon is the result of one of those mm -hmm. dalliances, right? The thing with... But his heart never changed throughout all that. David's heart never... He, every time he was corrected, he tore his clothes through, you know, and then went on. But he always repented. And we don't see any that. evidence of that in Solomon. And I would argue you don't see it anywhere in the end of his life. So what are the consequences that are laid out first to Solomon? Let's see. What are the consequences to Solomon? This is where he gets his just desserts for what he's done, right? This is where it finally all those chickens have come home to roost. Here's, here, here's how God punishes him. I will tear the kingdom from you and give it to your servant. But after his death. Right. So it's really no punishment to him at all. He's essentially is, is telling him, "I will destroy your legacy." Essentially, it's almost like the the thing you're trying. The to world do. will never know you because I will erase you from the wow. legacy part. Ooh, I'm gonna erase you. I hadn't thought about that. So the thing that he maybe he was relying on his wealth and his fame and all of that and the legacy that he was leaving behind was all going to be wiped out. And I think we've already touched on before how I think you can make an argument reading the book of Ecclesiastes that he was a tortured soul, mm -hmm. right? So he never really got away with it. It doesn't look like, like a big deal because he says here specifically that, yeah, I'm going to take the kingdom away from you, but not during your lifetime. In other words, remember now, honor, shame, culture. I'm not going to shame you while you are alive. And the reason he says I'm not going to do that is what? Because you're your father. Because you're not respecting your father. Because of my love relationship with your father. So Solomon does have consequences. I think it's just a little bit deep. We have to deep dig a little bit deeper to get those, right? But now what about 
um, Solomon's family. Remember, we don't sin in a vacuum, and he didn't sin in a vacuum. So what then are the consequences for the family? The dynasty, as we say in Uganda. Remember, the promise was, if you obey, your children will... And continue to rule. It'll be a dynasty, just like David. But what happens? Lose the kingdom. They're going to have the kingdom taken away, right? And the son, Rehoboam, who we know, right? So this first section, Saul, David, and Solomon, is called the United Kingdom, where all of Israel is together and they're ruling over the United. This act causes that kingdom to be rent torn into, right? And so the ten northern tribes, right, are sent away and they are put under, if, if you read the rest of the next part of the chapter, you'll find out that one of David's servants, excuse me, one of Solomon's servants, someone who worked for him, is just walking down the road and a prophet comes up to him and says, oh, by the way, God wants you to know that you're going to be the new king over the ten northern tribes, right? And all that's going to be left for... Rehoboam, Solomon's son, is one tribe. Two, really. What are they? Benjamin and Judah. Judah and Benjamin. Is that important? That Solomon's son would continue to reign over Judah and Benjamin. But the ten northern mm -hmm. tribes are going to be sent away with... Yes, because he has to Jericho. the bloodline. I'll explain that now. The bloodline? What are we talking about? Bloodline. So the, the ultimate ruler, Christ, has to still come from the line of David. And the promise had been to David that through you, right, <laughs> first through Abraham, but then through David, it will be one of your sons who will sit on the throne. And God said... Despite their rebellion, I'm going to keep my promise to David. So when he's saying, I'm keeping my promise to David, he's saying he's keeping his promise to us, to the world, the greater world, because the promise to David was through your son. And so for David's sake, in other words, for the sake of the world that is going to be blessed through this person, I am going to keep those two tribes for myself. So even in the midst of the judgment, right, there is this mercy. And then for the nation as a whole, obviously, the punishment being, what were the effects on greater Israel? We basically touched on them. Brothers and sisters, tribes that were supposed to be together are now divided into two separate nations. One being ruled by the legitimate heir to Solomon's throne, the other by just a dude. <laughs> like God said, hey. You got it. And oh, by the way, the same promise to Jeroboam. Just because he picked him on the side of the road doesn't really matter. Literally picked him on the side of the road. But the promise is still the same. If you, Jeroboam, and your children will be obedient to the law, what does he say? You'll be blessed and your children will continue to sit on the throne. Exact same promises all the way through. David, does it say one tribe because they had to come from Judah, the priestly tribe, do you think? Well, the promise was the Messiah would right. come through that. Yes, yeah. so I that's... I wondered why yeah. two verses... Yeah, and it's actually half of Benjamin, because half of Benjamin stayed in the north and half went down. That's why it's generally referred to as just one, but part of Benjamin, and Benjamin was the smallest one, if you remember. It was just a tiny little one. Yeah, I noticed it said a tribe and a house. 
Yes. What's so the difference between a house and a tribe? So within the tribes, there would be different houses, different family members who have that history, right? So um, part, basically what he's saying is only part of Benjamin is going to come and be part of this covenant. The rest of them is, are going to be part of the northern kingdom. Exactly. So I want you to notice, did you see the progression? Solomon sought wealth and married foreign wives. That's disobedience, right? A seemingly insignificant thing, right? But that's disobedience. And then he he treated his wives by, he, he um, opened up the door for them to have idol worship, and I would argue that that's tolerance. He tolerated his wives' idols, but then he went on and he actually endorsed idol worship by his actions. He built on that mountain, on that hill to the east side of Jerusalem, he built shrines. And, oh, by the way, excuse me, oh, by the way, then he built for the rest of his wives. So disobedience, tolerance, endorsement, and then finally participation. Do you see the downward spiral, downward progression? And it all started with a single innocuous sounding decision that I'm allowed to have a few wives, and they took it to a few too many. And exactly what God and Moses, through Moses had said exactly is exactly what happened. So here's my question. So if this is a cautionary tale, which I would argue that it is, right? It's a cautionary tale. We're supposed to read this and say, hmm, this should apply to us. We're not kings. At least I don't have any royal blood in me. Um, Dan, you did, Mr. McLewis, you did all of your new studies. Uh, are you have any king bloodline in you? Yes. Just a little bit? A lot. A lot of kingly bloodline, but we're not exempt from this. So what is, what are some of the lessons or the, the cautionary tales we should take from? For us. Be mindful of your actions. Be mindful of your actions. Meaning? Don't take the first step. Yeah, like thinking before you take the first step. That a journey of a thousand miles begins with a single step, so you better pay attention to that first yeah. single step. Because it's either going to be moving you in the direction toward kingdom and toward God, or, or it's going to be mm -hmm. moving you away. All right. So like being being aware of which direction you are moving. Mm -hmm. and, and I think, too, if you've taken a first step and you've gone down that slippery slope, at the point that you are reminded and are mindful that you've taken a wrong step, turn around yeah. and go back instead of continuing on. And my, my grandmother used to say, keep short accounts with God. I had to explain that this morning, accounts, because my grandmother was in her 90s when she said that to me. Back in the day, this, I even remember this, when I was a kid, 10, 8, 9, 10, she would just send me up to the hardware store, to the grocery store, to anywhere. To, I could go to the bank with a check. And they would give me the money, and I would just say, "Here, I'm here for my grandmother, right?" Or I'd go into the hardware store, and they would—I'd get whatever I needed, and they would write it down in this little book, right? And then she would get a bill, right? So, what does she mean by keep short accounts? Don't keep a lot on your account before you pay it. Exactly. So, this idea of maybe taking some more time for us to do these traditional Lenten things, like I don't know, um, end of the day uh, review of your day. You know, where have I been obedient to Christ today? Where have I maybe stepped away? And if you recognize you've stepped away and God brings that to your attention, then that's that repentance piece like David demonstrated for us, certainly. 
certainly a mindfulness and an awareness of that. But then I think biggest and most important is that recognition that you might think just that one little piece of disobedience isn't that really that big of a deal. But ultimately it can be because it can take you that first step down a path that's going to end up causing all kinds of issues. I want to make one final piece and then we'll we'll go to our time of communion. There's a little note there, just kind of passed through, that says... Um, no, you're good. That says that Solomon built these shrines on a mount just east of Jerusalem. His father, David, when he was caught in sin and had problems with his family after that, his son Absalom wanted his throne and he tried to take it away from him. And when David was running away from Absalom, the Bible says he went to a city just east of Jerusalem and he went up to the top of that and the entire way he was crying. He was weeping over the tragedy of the broken relationship with his son. The prophet Ezekiel, when he's talking about God leaving Jerusalem, right? He talks about he saw this vision of the presence of God leaving the temple and at first he goes to the city gate and stays there for a period of time and then it goes to this city, this hill on the east side of Jerusalem where it sits for a while and then Ezekiel actually sees it ascending and moving away. The actual presence of God leaving his holy city, Jerusalem. 2,000 years, not 2,000 years, 800 years later, that son of Solomon, the one who was promised through David, the one we call the Messiah, was the one who also walked out of Jerusalem up that hill to the east of Jerusalem on the Mount of Olives where he prayed exactly like his father David had before, weeping over the brokenness and the cost of sin that he would then pay on him, pay in his own body. And then later on, after his burial, death, burial, resurrection, he ascends back to his father from the top of the Mount of Olives. And Revelation chapter 20 says he's going to return to that same place. So the very place that Solomon built those temples, semiotics, here comes the son of David through that line of Solomon and overturns and literally makes right all of the wrongs that were being demonstrated right there on that mount. Isn't that an amazing picture that you would never, if you don't pay attention to the big story, you totally miss it. So we end each one of our gatherings here at the table in the same way by remembering that sacrifice on our behalf. We do so through these very simple elements, the bread which represents his body, the juice which represents his blood, we first receive those elements with the words of the body of Christ given for you, the bread, and then we dip it in the juice to the words of the blood of Christ shed for you. Once we've received that, we turn and offer it to the person next to us in that same humility. So this is the body and blood of Christ given for us. We hope you enjoyed this episode of the Table Dallas podcast. We invite you to join the conversation at one of our upcoming tables. To learn more about us, please check out our website at the Table Dallas. Dot com. We are saving a seat for you at the table.